Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Alan Carlson, International Secretary for World Congress on Families, giving a talk entitled The Natural Family in the Postmodern and Much More Real World. Mr. Carlson's talk was part of Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. In my remarks today, I want to move beyond such loose categories as modern and postmodern and perhaps post-postmodern to consider another way of organizing the past, namely through family cycles. The apparent joint death of family and faith has been argued for at least 35 years. Sociologist William D. Antonio, one time president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, he had once maintained that religion and family life were simply two sides of the same coin. Strong faith was correlated with healthy family life. However, in 1980, 35 years ago, he concluded that religion and the family had, quote, come to the end of their long affair, unquote. The traditional Western family, shaped and reinforced by Christian faith, now ran counter to the main thrust of American life, specifically individualistic hedonism. Accordingly, what D'Antonio called the religion-family complex could no longer fulfill its task of social control. The present and the future belonged to categories such as careerism and the pursuit of private pleasures. He argued that churches should abandon the futile defense of anachronistic dogma. Instead, they should listen to the people and learn from them. A one-way conversation that would indeed lead from a contraceptive mentality, an easy abortion, to the remarkable contemporary concept of same-sex marriage. Much more recently, Mary Eberstadt asserts in her 2013 book, how the West really lost God, a new theory of secularization, argued that religious faith declines or flourishes in close correlation to family life. Put another way, family decline in Western Europe and North America preceded secularization. It came first and pushed it along. The religious boom of the 1940s and the 1950s was actually conditioned and encouraged by the marriage and baby booms of that era. In the same way, it was family decline starting in the 1960s, driven by equity feminism and the sexual revolution, which drove religious decline or secularization, symbolized at the beginning by the infamous cover on, of Time magazine in 1996, Is God Dead? The problem with such pessimistic interpretations is that they lift events of the late 20th century out of a deeper and much richer historical context. I'm currently working on a book manuscript arguing that there have been four distinct cycles in the history of the family in America. These cycles show periods of strengthening or weakening of a distinctive American family system around a common normative model involving early and nearly universal marriage, high fertility, 
close attention to parental responsibilities, complementary gender roles, flexible but clear intergenerational bonds, an ideal of family economic autonomy, and key for us today, religious commitment. Such features have distinguished, I'm arguing, the American family system from a European model that has also been identified since about 1700. The European model involves late marriage, a high proportion of the adult population which never marries, and relatively low fertility. Importantly, and somewhat surprisingly, these cycles of strength and weakness have occurred in consistent 50-year swings. Roughly speaking, periods of strength are evident from 1630 to 1680, from 1730 to 1780, from 1830 to 1880, and from 1930 to 1970, an abbreviated cycle of only 40 years. These familistic periods of strength were set off by periods of decline. Again, decline periods, 1680 to 1730. 1780, right after the American Revolution, to 1830. And again, from 1880 to 1930. Again, noting that a period of decline, another one measured statistically, began around 1970. In my lecture today, I want to focus primarily on the period from 1930 to 1970, the most recent upswing, if you'll have it. I will identify some of the sources or root causes of this period of renewal, some of which came a little earlier, with a special emphasis on the role that was played by the Roman Catholic Church in America and by Roman Catholics in stimulating this cyclical revival. I will comment only briefly on the era of decline or decay, but we'll focus again on Catholic examples. And I will also then close with, by considering the prospects for renewal that lie ahead. Because if I am correct, a new time of religious and family revival may lie in the very near future. I turn your attention accordingly to five factors that encouraged family renewal in the early 20th century. First, the foundation of family renewal in mid-20th century America began with political recognition of the family somewhat earlier. This story starts with the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909. He was the first openly pro-life and pro-family president. A student of census numbers, Roosevelt worried as he saw the marriage rate and the birth rate falling in the United States while the divorce rate climbed. In response, he articulated a family ideology and a family politics that, when judged by Roman Catholic standards, would appear remarkably orthodox. On birth control, for example, Roosevelt labeled this practice the capital sin against civilization one that meant national death. He thought that the spread of birth control practices during the late 19th and early 20th centuries had been due to the power of wrong ideas. He cited, quote, the profound and lasting damage done by Malthus in his pessimism over population growth, and to a lesser extent by John Stuart Mill in his open advocacy for birth limitation. 
Roosevelt also blamed the blatant sham reformers who in the name of the new morality preached the old, old vice and self-indulgence. These most foolish of all foolish people who advocate a profoundly immoral attitude toward life in the name of reform and birth control were in fact the problem, the true corruptors of nations. Roosevelt also blamed the currents of liberal theology found among some American Christians for undermining the child-rich family. In a speech to a group of liberal Protestant theologians, he directly linked the procreation of children to Americanism. If you do not believe in your own people enough to see their numbers kept up, then you are not good Americans, you are not patriots, and I, for one, shall not mourn your extinction. <laughs> and in such event, I shall welcome the advent of a new race that will take your place because you will have shown that you are not fit to cumber the ground. Roosevelt also condemned divorce. As he told the National Congress of Mothers in 1905, easy divorce is now as it ever has been, a bane to any nation, a curse to a society, a menace to the home, an incitement to married unhappiness and to immorality. Elsewhere, he argued that the multiplication of divorces means that there is something rotten in the community, that there is some principle of evil at work. This president also held a remarkably positive view of marriage. It should be a full partnership, he said, with common parental care for children by both father and mother. More broadly, a true marriage would be, quote, a partnership of the soul, the spirit and the mind, no less than of the body. The highest ideal of the family, he wrote, could only be obtained only where the father and mother stand to each other as lovers and friends. Well, it's hard to imagine a modern president speaking with such force and eloquence on these matters. And in truth, even Roosevelt's biographers, including most recently Edmund Morris, ignore almost completely these profound insights of Mr. Roosevelt. He actually should be remembered as a great champion for life and for family, who charted ways towards domestic revival that would be picked up by others. A second source of family renewal grew out of the issue of mass immigration and assimilation into American life during the open decades of the 20th century. In this case, though, the lens is very different. The immigration problem was not the Hispanics. It was the German-Americans. In 1900, the German-Americans were the largest group of immigrants in America, and the ones who most worried the older Anglo-Saxon Protestant stock. Many German-Americans refused to assimilate. They kept their own language. They founded their own parochial schools, Catholic and Lutheran. And they organized into the Deutsche Amerikanischer National Bund, the German-American National Alliance, which pulled together over 6,000 independent German-American entities into a national lobby, is an advocate for a pluralistic, multicultural view of America. This Bund 
which had its own charter from the US Congress. Well, a few other organizations claim that, the Boy Scouts being one. This Bund was the La Raza of its day. Some eager German-Americans even called for the broad Germanization of American life, the adoption of German as a second language, a language of culture, English for economics. The crisis for this community came in 1914 to 1917, as the Great War in Europe heightened ethnic tensions in America. President Woodrow Wilson set out to crush what he called hyphenated America, with the German-Americans and the anti-English-Irish-Americans as his primary targets. The German-Americans, meanwhile, strove to keep the United States strictly neutral in the war. By early 1917, though, they had failed, and the institutions of German-America were openly and sometimes violently suppressed. Even the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibited all alcoholic drink, can be seen as an anti-German act. For the Germans were actually unified only on one point, the importance of beer and wine to the good life. All the same though, German America from that time period had another legacy. Quietly, but with real impact, German-American Christians introduced a new corporatist worldview into American life, with a focus on the vital social role played by such intermediary institutions as family, church, and community. A great book here by John Yardy, of late John Yardy at Berkeley, uh, called Minds of the West. Uh, I recommend this here. We see in this work, according to Yerdy, romantic notions of an organic society composed of people enveloped by groups taking root. Among German Roman Catholics, this influence, the influence of this new social Catholicism was particularly strong. In 1891, German-American Catholic organizations, Zentralverein and the Katholikentag, passed resolutions praising Pope Leo XIII's new encyclical, Rerum Novarum, and pledged to see its principles implemented in the United States. As Father Anton Heiter explained at the time, German-Americans must, quote, enter into the Christian social movement, which Leo XIII has so happily inaugurated, and to which our, German, our Catholic brethren of Germany owe their great success. German-American authors gave special attention to the qualities and models of the German Hausfrau, the mother and the housewife, as a model for American women. As historian Albert B. Faust wrote in 1911, America would not be what it is in vigor, population, and the bedrock civilization, except for the home training exemplified by the German-American housewife. Historically, the emphasis laid upon the household arts, such as cooking, sewing, care of the house and children, by so large a formative element of the population from the earliest period of German immigration to the present time, cannot have resulted otherwise than in impressing the economic advantage of the principle, the housewife, the homemaking principle, 
and furnishing an example for imitation. These profound images of the traditional Christian German-American home fed into the social politics of what's now called the maternalist movement. Sometimes also called social feminism, maternalism worked to reshape American public policy to reinforce the traditional home. Women such as Julia Lathrop, Grace Abbott, Edith Bremer, Frances Keller, Dr. Josephine Baker, Grace Abbott, and Mary Anderson argued for a family wage for fathers so that mothers would not have to work. They labored to reinforce the homemaking role for women, which they saw as an assimilation tool. As one of them put it, one motherhood from diversely situated women, that's how you assimilate an immigration group. One motherhood from diversely situated women. Between 1912 and 1964, maternalist ideas dominated the shaping of federal social policy. Early victories included 1912, creation of the U.S. Children's Bureau as part of the Department of Labor, which launched massive baby-saving campaigns, promoted breastfeeding, organized National Baby Weeks in 1916 and 1918, which drew millions of women into parades and seminars, and created Little Mothers Leagues among urban immigrant children. The elevation of Mother's Day by Congress to a national holiday in 1914. Passage of the Smith-Lever and the Smith-Hughes Acts, which provided federal funding for the instruction of girls in home economics. And the Shepard-Towner Act of 1921, which provided pre- and postnatal care to young mothers and their babies. It was the first federal medical entitlement. All of these measures reflected and were in significant part the result of distinctive German-American views of motherhood, family, and home. While the nativists of the early 20th century had suppressed the more visible cultural attributes of German America, I argue that these deeper family-centered sediments remained and helped to shape a family-centered interlude after 1930. Perhaps America was Germanized after all, but in this case to the special benefit of families, mothers, and babies. The third source of family renewal was accordingly public policy. And specifically, and here this may surprise some of you or lead to throwing of vegetables at me, specifically the domestic policies of the New Deal of the 1930s which in terms of social policy was a continuation of the maternalist campaign. Here it is useful to note that contemporary feminist historians hate, hate, loathe the New Deal. Recent histories covering the 1930s by feminist writers to a woman uniformly condemn the social policies of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Why would that be? Well, for the simple but unappreciated fact that every, every New Deal domestic policy initiative assumed the importance and structure of what we call the traditional family. It assumed a breadwinning father earning a family wage. It assumed a homemaking mother committed to the care of children. 
They assumed an autonomous home in other respects, serving as the center place of American society. For example, the New Deal maternalists were strict foes of daycare. They believed that women, that, I'm sorry, that children should be raised by mothers in their home. Key architects of the New Deal also carried directly, directly carried Catholic ideals into the system. For example, Father John Ryan, professor of social ethics at the Catholic University of America, America's foremost defender of a family wage for fathers, he served on the panel that drafted the Social Security Act of 1935. Arthur Altmaier, a German-American Catholic from Wisconsin, was the chief architect of the Social Security Amendments of 1939. This important measure, let's say in some ways much more important than the first Social Security Act, introduced the extra pension for homemakers, a 50% bonus on top of their husband's benefits. It created survivor's benefits for women and children and similar measures. Overall, the Social Security Amendments of 1939 made support of marriage, the family wage, the stay-at-home mother, and the large family the favored objects of public policy. Any deviations from this norm, divorce, illegitimacy, working mothers, deliberate childlessness, any of these faced significant financial disincentives. The whole New Deal project was ably summed up by Molly Dusen, head of the Women's Activities Department for the Democratic Party. When you begin to help the family to attain some security, you are at the same time beginning to erect a national structure for this same purpose. Through the well-being of the family, we create the well-being of the nation. In short, I argue that the New Deal used the state to reinforce the family in a very traditional form. And this is the explanation why so many active Catholics during the 1930s, and 40s, and 50s, your parents and grandparents, why they voted for the Democrats. They were, at that time, the party of the family. Fourth, this episode of family renewal also enjoyed the encouragement of the popular media. Representative here are the work and goals of Henry Luce, founder and editor of Time, Life, and Fortune magazines, and another half dozen. Life magazine in particular showed an enormous influence by the late 1940s. One third of all American families subscribed to this weekly. Luce consciously used this picture magazine to promote a common American identity rooted in images of family and faith, to bind the nation as the heir and protector of Western civilization. On religious questions, a major issue for Luce was the place of Catholicism in American life. Life magazine regularly featured Catholic themes and personalities, such as the Jesuit scholar John Courtney Murray. This is usually attributed to the influence of Luce's wife, Claire Booth Luce, one of the most famous of Catholic converts during the 1940s. Indeed, when the managing editor of Life, Joseph Thorndike, resigned in 1948, he privately confided to his successor that he worried about the Catholic Church taking over the magazine. 
Yet it seems clear that Luce's public celebration of Catholicism had deeper purposes. Luce, a Presbyterian, recognized that America could not be unified and active in the world without the loyalty of its largest single religious denomination. Catholicism in America must be reconciled for the good of the nation, he reasoned. And this was a central part of his journalistic project. Fifth, lay Catholic activism formed still another component of family renewal in the mid 20th century. One example of this, symbolic of it, I think, was the creation of La Leche League in the 1950s. All seven founders of the League were Roman Catholic women from the Chicago area. They had begun to meet as an action cell of the Christian family movement. Using a format designed by Canon Joseph Cargin, the women met to discuss theology and social action with concern not just, quote, for the betterment of their own family situations, but also with the life of families everywhere. As young mothers, these women soon grafted onto their conversations a common interest in natural childbirth and breastfeeding. Seeking a name for their new entity, they responded favorably to the suggestion of one of their husbands, an obstetrician, who commonly gave to his pregnant patients medals from a St. Augustine, Florida shrine dedicated to the Madonna. There's some bad Spanish here. Um, Nuestra Señora de la Leche y Buen Parto. Our Lady of Happy Delivery and Plentiful Milk. <laughs> so constituted La Leche League, in the words of historian Lynn Weiner, arose to defend traditional domesticity against the assaults of modern industrial life and to dignify the physical biological side of motherhood in ways that proved to have surprising appeal to many Americans. Where 19th century notions of true womanhood had focused on piety and moral purity of women, La Leche League stressed naturalism, focused on the mother and the baby together as symbols of simplicity and the natural order. In this way, the League, reinvigorated the earlier maternalist campaign with new language and new activism, focused on the womanly art of breastfeeding. Thousands of league groups mushroomed across the land. Indeed, the period from 1930, roughly, to 1970 produced an extraordinary, almost heroic flowering of Catholic family life in America. This was the era of the baby boom. And although fertility arose for all American religious groups, it rose far more rapidly and continued longer among Catholics. There were signs indeed that the celebrated baby boom was largely a Catholic phenomenon to the degree that it was more than catching up with births delayed by the war. The total marital fertility rate for non-Catholics, as average number of births born per woman, for non-Catholics, that figure was 3.15 children in the years 1951 to 55, and still 3.14 unchanged by 1961 to 65, so 10 years later, hadn't changed. 
For Catholics, though, the average number of births per woman was 3.54 in the early 1950s, but by 1961 to 65, it had increased dramatically to 4.25. We also see the return, statistically, of the large Catholic family. In a survey, again from the early 50s, 1952 to 55, only 10% of Catholics under age 40 reported having four or more children. That was an identical figure for Protestants at the same time. However, by the end of the decade, by 57 to 59, the Protestant figure remained, was at 9% now, but the proportion for Catholics had more than doubled to 22%. Still more surprising was the nature of this resurgence in Catholic fertility. It flourished among the best educated Catholic women who had attended college. They were bearing more children than Catholic women without a high school degree. Increased fertility was also found primarily among younger parents. Through 1965, each new group, each new cohort of parents was more pronatalist, pro-birth in its attitudes than the group before. And it had a clear religious focus. More frequent attendance at mass was related to more births. In addition, the rise in fertility was part of a broader commitment to family life. Surveys from the time repeatedly showed Catholic extended family bonds to be more durable, and the enjoyment of the parenting task more intense than among non-Catholics. Indeed, the Catholic family ethic, resting on devotion to church teachings, which were very clear at the time, seemed to be reaching new highs in the mid-1960s. Among the American laity, at least on these issues of, mar of, of marital and family ethics, there was no crisis of faith. Within 10 years, though, all of these qualities had collapsed utterly and completely, prompting a spate of articles on the end of Catholic fertility. What happened? Well, there is little doubt that the currents of ideas affecting Catholicism in the late 1960s, such as challenges to traditional practices and hierarchical authority in the wake of Vatican II, papal encouragement of debate on the contraceptive question in the mid-1960s, followed by the stunning reaffirmation of orthodoxy and humana vitae in 1968, the impact of feminist and neo-Malthusian population control ideas on some key Catholic elites, particularly in America, North America, and Europe. These lay partly behind this shift. Looked at another way, dissent became legitimized. Doctrinal uncertainty grew. And given the new divisions among theologians and church leaders, it appears that a significant portion of the laity may simply have followed the easiest of several disputed paths of obedience. Indeed, changes in lay Catholic behavior and attitudes concerning family have, can be traced specifically to the years 1967 to 71. In their detailed study of Catholic fertility in Rhode Island, demographers Leon Bouvier and SLN Rao found that average expected family size among Catholics fell during those four short years 
Average expected family size fell from 3.3 children to 2.8, a substantially greater fall than happened among Protestants in the same area. This fall in expected fertility was sharpest for the better educated. Among Catholic women with a college education, the decline was from 3.7 children desired to 2.7 in just four years. In addition, frequency of attendance at mass ceased to be related to fertility. Even the large family ideal vanished. As late as 1967, 28% 1967, of devout Catholics in Rhode Island planned to have five or more children. By 1971, that figure had fallen from 28% to only 7%. Obviously, something extraordinary was going on. Well, the shift gears. If my, cycle, my concept of cycles actually holds true, what then are the prospects for a new cycle of renewal? Indeed, if they run in 50-year variations or 50-year cycles more or less, um, something should be happening new very soon. Well, in this slide, I want to offer to you a few thoughts in closing from a 2012 book by Eric Kaufman entitled, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? He offers a very provocative look at the human future. He's a political scientist at the University of London, a self-identified secular liberal. He's not a friend. Nonetheless, he boldly concludes, religious fundamentalists are on course to take over the world through demography. Here he uses the old American Protestant term fundamentalist to broadly describe Jews, Christians, and Muslims worldwide who take their beliefs seriously enough to allow scriptural teachings on marriage and procreation to influence their behavior. That's his definition of a fundamentalist. In this regard, he suggests that the future of the human race lies with groups such as American Mormons, Old Order Anabaptists, Haredi Jews, Salafi Islamists, Quiverful Protestants, Lestadian Lutherans, a group of my people who live in the north woods of Finland and Sweden and don't believe in birth control. How do they get there? These are religious communities still faithful to God's command, be fruitful and multiply. With fertility otherwise tumbling around the globe, these religious groups with total fertility rates of between four and eight births per woman are already expanding the relative share of the population. Compounded over four generations, the transition would prove staggering. Now, Kaufman skillfully dismantles the modern liberal myth that secularism is on the march and will dominate the future. Instead, he argues, and I quote, we have embarked on a particularly turbulent phase of history in which the frailty of secular liberalism will become ever more apparent. Unquote. At the same time, he explains how the liberal values of tolerance and pluralism suck the life out of moderate religion, while allowing fundamentalist subcultures to emerge and grow. 
He summarizes in a nice line, I like this, secularism like DDT wiped out much of its opposition, but also gave rise to new resistant strains of religion. <laughs> Kaufman gives extensive attention to several of what he calls enlightenment resistant groups. Great phrase. The ultra-Orthodox Haredi will shortly constitute the majority of all people in Israel. They were 1% of the Israeli population in 1948. 60% of the children in preschools and kindergartens in Israel are now ultra-Orthodox children. Um, and they will soon displace the secular Jews who founded the country. Um, he points to the American Mormons, who are still increasing at a rate of about 40% per decade. Some through conversions, mostly. They just have big families. He looks at the quiverful evangelicals who reject the use of birth control. He looks at the old order Amish, some of them around here, these quaint people, but they've expanded from 5,000 in 1900 to 300,000 today. They keep that rate up for another century. Uh, there'll be 30 million of them. Um, they will be everywhere. Uh, Another century after that, we're all Old Order Amish. Uh, okay. While seculars, that's his term, I like it again. While seculars increasingly avoid marriage and children, these faith communities have rediscovered the biblical injunction to reproduce and have, quote, thrived in the most individualistic, profane Western societies. Now, curiously, he gives, Kaufman gives very little attention to signs of the same phenomenon within Roman Catholicism. It is clear, though, that pockets of high fertility can also be found in, say, American Latin mass congregations and other traditionalist settings. I suspect that such a high fertility subculture could even be found here in Steubenville. Um, there are aspects of the same development. The political effects of these changes, Kaufman predicts, will be huge due to differential fertility between seculars and fundamentalists. By 2100, he argues, three-quarters of America may be pro-life. Their activism will leap over the borders of the Redeemer nation to evangelize the world. And he closes his book with these words. It will be a century or more before the world completes its demographic transition. There is still too much smoke in the air for us to pick out the peaks and valleys of the emerging social order. This much seems certain. Without a new secular ideology to inspire social cohesion, fundamentalism cannot be stopped. The religious shall inherit the earth. And might I add, may it be so. <laughs> Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.